Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Hey, I'm looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Sean Shepard. And Sean is one of the founding partners of GrowthX, which provides seed stage venture capital and market development expertise to a select group of startups seeking product market fit and productable revenue, which are all great things, as I will acknowledge. So now he's lead instructor as well for sales and business development at Track at GrowthX Academy, which we'll talk about. Sean, how are you doing? I'm great, Andy. How are you? Great. Welcome to Accelerate. Thank you. I love the name, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, you know, this actually the name comes from all the work I did with startups back uh, when I was working with startups, uh, working for startups <laughs> back in the day. So, um, take a minute, maybe introduce yourself. You've got a great story about how you got started in sales, which we talked about before we came on the air. So, maybe you can tell that as well. Sure. Um, I'm a five time founder, always the sales and marketing guy that took. The product to market, uh, three three wins and two valuable learning experiences over the years. That's a good good percentage. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, they say in baseball, right? You're three for ten, you're in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. I'll, I'll certainly take it. Yeah, I, do, I can't. I can't take all the credit. I certainly did not do it alone. So, how'd you get your start in sales? Oh yeah, we were just talking uh, off off air about that. Um, as a, uh, I was a. Teenage arms dealer. I uh, can't imagine that was – if today uh, I did what I did back then, I would probably make national news. You'd be expelled um, instantly. I, absolutely. No, in all seriousness, I was obsessed with Bruce Lee movies and, and ninjas, and uh, I would order Chinese throwing stars out of the back of Black Belt magazine, literally mail order, fill it out by hand, put real money – cash and coin in an envelope and send it off. And six weeks later, I'd have a few Chinese throwing stars. And I spent anywhere from 25 cents to $3 on those things. And my friends became so enamored with them, they were willing to offer me three, four, five times what I paid for them. And I turned that into a business. Um, <laughs> so much so that I actually used uh, a lot of the proceeds to help my family uh, extend its trip to Disneyland that summer. <laughs> so... How what how are you taking those lessons and applying those today to 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 the companies you work with? 
Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, it's it's funny. Um, obviously, every company needs to have a business model. Two of the things that we do in the market development acceleration program at GrowthX, which unlike other accelerators, which are focused on helping companies develop product and raise money, we're focused on helping companies market product and make money. Um, and to that end, uh, what we look for are business models. Uh Two, two things. Can you be culturally a functional learning organization that says we don't know what we don't know yet about the market and we're willing to pivot if we need to? Um, and can we learn quickly and adapt quickly in the most capital efficient way possible? Because the, the venture capital runs out very quickly. Um, and two, can I find a repeatable, scalable CAC LTV ratio that allows me uh, to demonstrate a business model that says, yes, I can get people to pay me more for my service or product than it costs me to acquire them. And so when companies come into when you decide to work with a company is so how do you how do you do that that's different let's say than you talked about you know hey we're not trying there just to raise additional money but what's that look like on a hands-on basis for companies that you work with? So on a hands-on basis the first thing we do is we make an investment decision at the investment committee level as to whether or not this is a company we want to invest in just like any traditional seed stage company would uh, in, in investment house would um, once they're in the portfolio then they have the opportunity to apply for the market accelerator program or what we call MXP um, and at that point we start to look at a whole host of factors the first being people um, we're a people-first organization. The longer I do this, the less I get excited about products and markets, the more I get excited about teams. Even though I recognize, and we all do, that between product team and market, market wins most every time, uh, we choose happiness first. So we want to enjoy who we work with um, when we're working alongside a company to help them grow. Um, from that point, once we've completed a market readiness assessment and both parties decide that they want to work together, uh, we take a very methodical and milestone-driven approach. We have four key milestones under which we operate to help a company grow. Um, they're foundational and delivery-based milestones. Um, the first one is discovery. Uh, what resources do you have in terms of people, process, and technology? What will you need to to get to the next market milestone, um, what what will you need once you have achieved that market milestone? Then we get into who is your customer, not long term, not what you sold to your investors, but who's your customer right now? Uh, what customers will get you from point A to point B? Because we're all operating under the same premise here. We have a limited amount of time and money and resources to allocate towards getting to that milestone. So what we can't do is behave in a way that gets us distracted from that purpose. Right. So we have to be very discerning about who that customer is now, not down the road, and the profile of that customer. And what are we asking for from that customer? Are we looking just for feedback? Are we looking for revenue? Is it the right kind of revenue? Are we looking for betas, pilots, number of customers to validate um, the MVP, everyone has a different milestone at a different stage depending on the product and market, but the rules are the same. Because as I always say, while your product and your market are unique, the path to product market fit is not. We all have to do the same things. So once we identify who that is and we create a hypothesis around that, we don't draw assumptions, um, we develop hypotheses. My father taught me the only thing we should assume in life is responsibility for your own actions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything else is that. just in a... Everything else is just a, uh, 
just an assumption. So if you construct a hypothesis, you set yourself up from a mindset standpoint to learn. And you, it changes the entire dynamic of how you approach each step in the market development process. So once you've figured out who that customer is, you've, you've developed that ICP hypothesis. Now we need to find out where they are. So we have to develop a data acquisition strategy. Where are they? How many of them are there? Then how do we talk to them? Not in a way that sells, but determines whether or not we can uh, fit with each other. So we build what we call an attraction framework. And that attraction framework is there and designed to get somebody to say, ooh, that's interesting, tell me more. Not sell my product, not demo my product, not talk about my product. Mm-hmm. Product, de- product demos suck because they're about product. Don't tell me what you do, tell me what you do for me. Exactly. So you have to create a, a value hypothesis around it. So once we've developed that, then we go into market messaging. Um, and we create unique sale- selling propositions for each ICP, unique value propositions for each ICP, method, mode, medium, and format. And then before we begin the next milestone phase of outreach and execution, uh, we work on instrumentation. Uh, you have to have the right marketing and sales automation tools in place right now for us to be able to measure what we're doing because what, what gets measured gets done. And we will not move forward together as a group until that happens. Um, and it doesn't have to be big, robust, enterprise-class Marketo and Salesforce stuff. It's typically very lightweight stuff. Propeller CRM is one of our favorite companies to work with. It's the, it's the perfect modern blend of marketing and sales automation in one simple tool, for example. And there are many others out there like that. Sure. Um, the point is, is that we have to be able to track it. We have to demonstrate that we can follow the entire customer life cycle uh, from cradle to grade. Then we begin that outreach and execution, and we do it in small batch A-B testing in a very data-driven approach, especially when you're dealing with analog sales, business to business. It's much more squishy. Feedback cycles are longer. Loops are tougher. Um, it's, it, the the data is not as tangible because there's so much live interaction. Um, but we start to collect that feedback and we iterate and we keep the things that work and we discard the things that don't. Then once we have people saying, okay, I'm interested, tell me more, then we go into the conversational framework. And this is actually what I'm talking about today at the Traction Conference is I think this is the most critical step in the market development process when you are an early stage company with limited resources. This is the moment where someone has said, okay, Let's talk. Tell me more about what you do, and we'll see if there's interest. This is where we, as startup founders and renaissance reps representing those founders, have to be very discerning in properly qualifying the people we're talking to and whether or not it's going to be worth our time going forward uh, to continue to allocate resources towards this opportunity. Make sense? So when you said renaissance reps, meaning? Sorry. That's a phrase uh, Mark Leslie came up with. It. It was a founder of Veritas and one of my mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Renaissance Rep. It's the it's the characteristics of that first sales or business development hire that represents your product in the marketplace. And oftentimes it's the CEO or the selling founder. And uh, many years ago, when I met Mark, and he talked about this concept, and he wrote a paper that's uh, published in Harvard Business Review on the sales learning curve methodology, I immediately identified with it. I'm that guy. So what, you know, makes, I'm what a, makes them a renaissance rep? They're attributes. So they may be a lover of technology, but not necessarily a techie. Like me, for example, I can't even spell HTML. 
Um, but I love what technology does for people. So their attributes are they can embrace ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't. They 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 uh, they communicate effectively cross functionally across teams. So they know how to take market feedback from the customer and go talk to engineers. I always say Renaissance reps are the only people that can talk to humans and engineers. Um, <laughs> and their job is to facilitate that product market feedback loop to help you learn because what you're really doing is taking an incomplete product to market, hoping people will spend time with you to develop a more complete product that's scalable and other people will want, right? That's the whole purpose of this. Yeah, so the Renaissance so, rep then becomes this, the person that can easily, sorry, well-rounded person that can synthesize information. That's right. And typically hates working in later stage companies in a cubicle. Right. Whereas the coin operated rep, as Mark defines it, is the person that has been successful in already successful established environments. The problem that happens, one of the biggest mistakes that founders make is they go hire a coin op rep for a renaissance position. So they'll (laughs) go hire somebody from a late stage company and put them in an early stage role they want a high salary. They want low risk. They oh, create well, how many, bullshit. Right. How many startups in the Valley, and this is not a, meant to be used pejoratively, hired people from Oracle <laughs> into, mm-hmm. their early, into their early stage enterprise company that were late stage Oracle reps? That Yeah, they'd made a ton of money at Oracle, but they had never worked in the early stage. And I, I could speak volumes about the number of companies I've seen that have done that. Yeah, they do it all day long. And this is why Mark came up with this concept, because as a VC on Sand Hill, he said, why does it always take twice as long and cost twice as much to get to break even for these uh, for these enterprise software startups? And it's for that very reason. And then the worst part is, is that the board, the investors, leadership, they all blame the sales guy. But it's, it's not the, the sales guy's fault. No. There's a learning curve that every company has to go through. Well, first of all, the investor is the one that had this guy on their buddy list that brought him in. Yes, <laughs> so, that, that also happens. Yeah, so just to be really <laughs> clear about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the most expensive part of any organization is labor, right? And sure. when you're when you're a small company of two to to fifty people, and you you're out there paying a high priced late stage salesperson who congratulations happened to be present while another company was being successful um, to come into an early stage company. Embrace the ambiguity, have no support, have no history, have no referenceable customers, have no forecasts. Um, what do you expect to happen? You're setting everybody's being set up for failure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we see it all day long. And then you go 12, 18 months down the road and you're no further along of our accelerator program is to set up a functional learning organization. Right. So it's anyway, so, the re- so back to the Renaissance rep's job then is to start to manage these conversations in a way that allows everybody to efficiently and effectively get what they want out of the conversation. And, and what's most important to recognize is that this is the moment, and you you've, sounds like you've experienced this yourself, Andy, I was where you guy. can choose. Yeah, you can choose to spend the next six weeks or six months or 100 man hours on this opportunity or not. So it's probably right now at that initial conversation where we need to be really smart about whether or not we want to do that. Mm-hmm. And we have to make a good decision about this. So how do we do that? Right. Um, and in order to do that, you've got to understand first how people buy and why they buy in business, not in consumer. Emotion has a whole other dynamic to it. 
But in, in, the, in the world of business, people buy for one of four reasons. Make money, save money, create a competitive advantage, or stay out of prison. <laughs> but they're still people, though. They are people, but so, they are people, only people, one person. Right, but people but still buy. I mean, emotion still drives decision-making, even in business. It does. It, more so in a simple sale is defined by one person involved in the sale. But in, in most businesses, especially in B2B, a complex sale as defined by a sale where there's more than one person involved in the process, in the decision-making process, they have to logically justify the purchase. And they typically have to do it through economics or risk, right? So, yeah. well, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that conversation later. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's just a, like a dispute on what order those things take place. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's absolutely true. That's why I call it a framework. It's not a script. It's not dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it's not static. And it's not an order of operation. It's just a series of factors that people use to make business decisions, successful business decisions. Um, and so now, how do you develop a message and a framework that uh, allows you to draw a natural conclusion that ties to one of those four reasons or multiple of those reasons? Mm-hmm. Um, how can I help you make more money, save more money, um, create a competitive advantage in your market as defined by however you define it or uh, stay out of prison? And I joke about the stay out of prison thing, but it's compliance and risk, right? There, there's liability. There are things that we're legally required to purchase mm-hmm. um, that if we don't, we get in trouble, sorts of stuff. So how do I now develop a message hypothesis, a value hypothesis that says, based on my research and what I know about what we do, I think we can help your company do one of these four things or two of these four things, et cetera. I'd love to have a conversation to understand if that is in fact the case. That's the message approach. That's the attraction framework. Now you enter that conversation saying, how much time do we have today? What do you want to get out of this conversation? And I'll share with you what I want out of this conversation, which is just to determine if there's a fit to continue this conversation beyond today. And the last thing we do is demonstrate our product. And it's the hardest thing for people to do because they just can't, you know, there's downward pressure from the, pot, from the top to show people what we do and vomit yeah, uh, show up so up much. Right. Yeah, I mean, if just, just my LinkedIn in-mail box every day, the stuff I get, just it, it, it's laughable. I get manifestos. Um, <laughs> from, yeah. Well, and <laughs> your email too. I mean, it's so, yeah, the downside of, of that's pe- the lesson people haven't seemed to learn yet is that if you start your email with the word hi, it's, it's a, you know, it's an automated workflow coming at you. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. So again, you, to earn the right to have a conversation with most people, you have to demonstrate that you've done the work um, and, and the research in going into it. Um, go slow to go fast. So get very particular and targeted. And again, as I say, as I like to say, sometimes it's not, you know, it's not spam if it's relevant, to be fair. I yeah. get I get I get unsolicited emails from people that are well thought out yep. that ask the right questions that are short and pithy and yep. to the point that are conclu- conclusion based writing which is I conclude this here's the reasons why I'd love to talk to you about whether or not this can, we can work together right and you that's make a decision con- whether I'm worth some of your time to do that exactly and that's the construct um, but people use scripts they talk in one direction uh, they go straight into product demos. And they never actually get anywhere. And then they spin their wheels. Um, because I always say the second best answer in sales is no. 
But that's not a right. I agree. Actually, it's sometimes the best answer. But so the question for you is, you know, this isn't, you know, the the you know, what you're talking about here is not just relevant in early stage company. I mean, anybody that's using an inside sales model, you've got the sales development platform that people use, the model they use, the predictable revenue model. They have the same issue. Absolutely, and you'll notice in the words I use and how I describe what we teach. And what we coach against and what we measure is completely product, market, industry, sector agnostic. It's business to business. It's my job and what I try to what the idea that I want, you know, I want to get rid of the, the, the term closing, for example. I think it's the Super. it's urbane, it's it yeah. it, it connotes um, transaction, not relationship. I, I prefer things well, it connotes like, a level of suasion that doesn't really exist. So, exactly. Right. It's very self-centered. It's very it's very company-centric and not mar- product-centric and not market-centric. Once again, we when we start, and this is what I love about the lean movement. And again, this is great. This goes like you said. There's there's not a whole lot of new ideas. There's they've just been repackaged. I mean, this stuff goes back to Ed Deming and Kaizen and lean manufacturing, mm-hmm. which is I'm not going to build ten thousand widgets until I know one widget works. Um, but in software, we build a, a widget. Uh, we put it in the cloud, and it only works ten percent of what it really sh- of what we're selling, uh, and then we expect people to buy that. Um, and that's not how it works. You have to work from the market uh, back. Yeah. So I guess a question for you. This is sort of one that comes up frequently as as we have these conversations about you know data driven sales, which is is so important. Is so has the has the art gone out of selling? You know, I, I, that, it's, oh God, I love that you're asking that again, because literally the topic of my talk today is the art and science, analog growth hacking, the art and science of closing deals. And the first words that come out of my mouth is art is just science, which is yet to be measured. Um, okay, so I'm going to have to write the, that down. The, 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 the problem is where the art is gone is that uh, we have stopped getting the data from the right source, Andy. The right source is the human. It's out of their mouth. It's not in email. It's not in how many clicks and impressions you, you get. It's not in open rates and read rates and reply rates and bounce rates. It's in, I think I have something that can help you. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Can we have a conversation to see whether or not that's true? And then listen to the person, ask the right questions, <laughs> and conduct an interview <laughs> like you're conducting right now. But they can't listen to the answer because they're too busy thinking about the next question they're going to ask. That's right. And that, that's a, one of the major fundamental faults with, with uh, unprofessional selling as opposed to professional selling uh, that exists in our society. And now you're going to get me on the whole myth of a salesman topic, which is, you know, from the day we're born, we're taught that, that, that sales is bad. From snake oil to used cars to Willie Loman, um, our retail experience as humans with sales is a negative one and there's no education for professional selling yet. 50% of college graduates end up in some sort of sales related role. And you and I and companies bear the burden of that turnover is endemic and stays typically around 50 to 60% across the entire selling industry. Um, and people are miserable yet. Those that figure it out have the highest average earned income over a lifetime. They're, they're, they're generally some of the most happiest people. They have the lowest divorce rate of any major professional industry. 
Um, and I think it's the greatest profession in the world, and it needs to be treated like that. And if it is, then we wouldn't have these people talking all the time and not listening. Well, part of it's just the framework, as you talked about, is, is set so incorrectly. Is, is For me, sales is a service. Yes, service I provide to a buyer, and I and in my latest book, Amp Up Your Sales, I have this quote from Jeff Bezos, which I just love. That to me encapsulates sales better than anything. It's from an interview he did in the Harvard Business Review, where he said, and people have listened to the show have heard me say this a million times, is that but the quote is, you know, we don't make money when we sell things; we make money when we help customers make purchase decisions. Yeah, and, absolutely, and so. If you're doing anything in sales on a day-to-day basis that doesn't help the customer make a buying decision, you're doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. And, the, and so the art that, that still does exist or should exist in sales is the philosophy and the how we do things, not what we do. And it's this approach of selling is just trying to help others get what they want. Yeah. Closing is actually not a tactic or a trick or a tip or a technique or even a transaction. It is, if you accept the term, and I don't, <laughs> um, a byproduct of being fully immersed in that objective of trying to help somebody else get what they want. Yeah. No, the closer, we could spend a whole episode on the myth of the closer. And I've written about yeah. the myth of the closer. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I want to business, change it to helping, business, right? right? In it a business-to-business business space, they make their decisions when you're not in the room. Now, absolutely. Now, I, I know that moment that the customer makes the mental decision they want to do business with me, that's not getting the order. I, I call that winning the sale before you win the order. And if you can practice that and things you need to do that, you'll get more orders, but they're not going to make that decision in front of you. Absolutely. That's why as part of the conversational framework, the ultimate outcome is just to obtain a commitment to a next step, a mutually yep. agreed upon next step, whatever that step is, whether it's you sending them something or them sending you something or exchanging information or agreeing to bring other people into a future discussion or setting up a demo or um, just whatever it is, but it's it, any step, no matter how small, if you decide to move forward with that person has to be thought about, not just in terms of, can you get their interest, but are they, do they fit yep. your current Mr. Right now, ideal customer profile? Yep. And are, because how many times have we seen a pipeline with 80% probability close rates at the bottom of the funnel and the people go dark and we have absolutely no reason why. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't explain it, and we can't. And it, well, I don't get it. Everybody, the, they the love they, me. That's the problem. They can't explain it, right? Exactly. And the point is, is that to get to this sooner, the sooner you can get to the no, the better. Yeah, I've I have a whole section of my latest book about how you disqualify prospects and the reason you need to do that. So along the same lines, yeah, it's absolutely essential. Yeah, and and while the majority of what we're talking about, as you said, applies across selling in general. And it does. Um, it it just it becomes a more heightened um, priority to focus on the allocation of resources um, at the early stage yep. when you ha when they are limited. You it doesn't mean they're not going to be your customers later, right? And you're one person or you're two people. You can't talk to everybody. No, and also so the, you should. The big guy could kill you. I mean, the really big customer could kill you. Absolutely. Happens all the time. Yeah. So you have to be 
you have to discern that too, because the bigger the customer, the longer the sales cycle, the higher cost to acquire them. Therefore, you must charge that much more. Typically at early stage, even in a technology or product sale, you're selling a service as much as anything because you've got to teach them how to use it exactly. and implement it. You have to recognize the difference between a continuous and discontinuous innovation. Are you changing actual behaviors or are you just improving and automating an existing process and how that's going to impact your entire business if you say yes? All of those factors have to be taken into account, which is why the conversational framework is so critical because this is the point where you can just either decide to continue to work with this person or not. And um, that will have a major impact in your business. Yeah, absolutely. So we're moving to the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And the first one is, is a hypothetical scenario. And in the scenario, it's sort of relevant, a little relevant, what we were just talking about. You've just been hired as the new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. So the board, CEO, anxious for things to start turning around quickly. So what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Uh, well, I, <laughs> the first thing I'm going to do is hopefully I took the job before I accepted the position. I understood why things had stalled and how I can unstall them. Um, so, so assuming that I know what, know the reason, uh, things have stalled and I know, um, and I know, uh, I think I know how to solve them. The first two weeks are are dedicated exclusively to evaluating my options internally with, uh, from a resource perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm focused on, I'm not changing anything. I'm observing, uh, I'm slowly starting to develop relationships. I'm starting to understand who's aligned with me and who is not from a values perspective, because that's the most important thing. Growth X core value. Number one is people first for a reason. Mm -hmm. The longer I live, the more I care about the people and the less I care about the company because the company is just a collection of people. Um, so I'm going to spend my time understanding them, understanding uh, what they do, how they do it, uh, what drives them, who is go who I think is going to be on the team. I'm big on hugging elephants, so I immediately openly communicate and address any concerns and issues that they have. I want mm -hmm. to build trust and rapport, and I want to uh, understand how they operate and perform. Um, and then start to make decisions about um, who's on board and who's not and what steps and actions need to be taken to uh, align resources to install um, sales. Okay. That works. All right. And so it's probably going to take longer than two weeks. Well, no. You, <laughs> it was just what you're going to do to get started. That's, yeah. So what could yeah. you do that have the biggest impact up front? So, okay. Um, some sort of rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or elaborate if you wish. The first one is, when you personally, Sean, are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Um, I think that generally uh, I want to help people. Okay. My, my, what I've learned in my life is that I derive the most satisfaction out of helping others. And I've also learned that by giving everything I have, I've been able to get everything I want. Mm -hmm. And so my genuine, it's my genuine, sincere desire to help others be successful. I, if, if I can make others successful, I know that I'll become successful. Excellent. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Um, that's a 
Boy, that's a great question. Um, I think Mark Leslie was probably the one that I think I look to and say uh, changed how I thought about all of this. Um, you know, what he did as a sales guy to build you know, one of the largest software companies in the world and then move into the investment community and recognize that the problem wasn't a product problem. It was a sales problem mm-hmm. and started to address it and, and create thought leadership around it. Uh, and do it with a very common sense and focused approach around execution. Um, I would say that Mark is is my role model. Okay. What's one book every salesperson should read? It doesn't necessarily have to be a sales book. Um, I think Spin Selling, without a doubt, period, end of story. The reason is, and I've read, I can't say I've read them all, but I try to read them all. Um, the reason is, is it's data-driven. You know, Dr. Rackham went out for 10 years and collected data on tens of thousands of sales calls, and he used that to understand human behavior, buying behaviors, uh, decision-making processes, and how to align your selling process to to another person and organization's buying process. And it works mm-hmm. across every industry, product, market, and sector. This, the, the process of understanding how people buy, the way, recognition of needs, evaluation of options, resolution of concerns, and by the way, I don't believe in objections. I believe people have concerns. They need to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. addressed, and attempted to be resolved. There are no objections. Once again, it connotates, it connotes c- confrontation. Um, and then decision. So that four-step process um, pretty much works for everybody. And so now if you can uncover the need or develop the need or determine whether or not there is a need, it makes it very easy to figure out whether or not you can help somebody. Exactly. All right. Last question for you. This is a tough one. What's on your playlist these days? Um, boy, I am really boring. I don't have a music playlist. I listen to audiobooks all day. Okay. Well, that's fine. Um, that's fine. What's, what are you listening to? Band, my favorite band of all time is Metallica. So. Metallica. <laughs> that speaks volumes right there. Yeah. <laughs> it does. What I'm, what I'm listening to right now is uh, a series of articles published by Mark Twain between 1860 and 1880. <laughs> I love it. Love and it. they are hilarious. Yeah. If you're a Mark Twain fan, oh, he's one of my favorite American uh, humorists. And um, living in San Francisco, listening to him when he was actually working the crime beat in the areas that we now know as Chinatown and North yep. Beach, and um, and the stories that he tells, uh, it's just it's it's super fascinating. It's a history buff. Um, I absolutely uh, enjoy it. As he is reputed to have said, the coldest winter I spent was a summer in San Francisco. Yes, and as a golf nut, he's also called my favorite sport a good walk spoiled. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, Sean, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I really enjoyed it. It was great. And so tell folks how they can find out more about GrowthX. Uh, they can go to growthx.com. They can learn more about uh, GrowthX as a fund, GrowthX as an accelerator, uh, and the GrowthX Academy, which we're launching in July in San Francisco to train really smart people who want these traction roles and early stage companies. Salespeople need an education. Our traditional institutional educational system does not allow that to happen. Um, we want to do that. Excellent. Okay, well, great. Well, remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new. We we're talking about being learning to help organizations today. Learn something new to help you accelerate your success. An easy way to do that is to make this podcast a part of your daily routine, whether you listen in your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Sean Shepard, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. 
Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.